This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, what can a thinker that lived 1,700 years ago on an entirely different continent tell us about our lives in the 21st century? It turns out quite a bit. We speak with philosopher and author James K.A. Smith about his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is James K.A. Smith. He's a popular speaker who's written many books, including Awaiting the King, Imagining the Kingdom, How Not to Be Secular, and the Christianity Today Book Award winners You Are What You Love, Desiring the Kingdom, and Who's Afraid of Postmodernism. He is professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he also holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair in Applied Reformed Theology and Worldview. He was editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine from 2013 to 2018, and he's now editor-in-chief of the Image Journal. Today we're discussing his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. James K.A. Smith, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, it's great to talk to you, David. Thank you. So, as a way of getting into our conversation, I've picked out a passage from the middle part of your book, on the road with August- on the road with Saint Augustine, and I'd love for you to read it. Yeah, absolutely. You picked one of my favorites, I think. <laughs> this is in a chapter on freedom. To read Augustine in the twenty-first century is to gain a vantage point that makes all of our freedom look like addiction. When we imagine freedom as only negative freedom, freedom from constraints, hands-off liberty to choose what I want, then our so-called freedom is actually inclined to captivity. When freedom is mere voluntariness, without further orientation or goals, then my choice is just another means by which I'm trying to look for satisfaction. Insofar as I keep choosing to try to find that satisfaction in finite created things, whether it's sex or adoration or beauty or power, I'm going to be caught in a cycle where I'm more and more disappointed in those things and more and more dependent on those things. I keep choosing things with diminishing returns, and when that becomes habitual and eventually necessary, then I forfeit my ability to choose. The thing has me now. And that's our guest, James K.A. Smith, reading from his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine. There's so much there in that one short passage that I think may surprise some of my listeners, because like you, and you talk about this in your book, I think a lot of people encounter Augustine sort of framed the wrong way, and in fact, maybe framed and sort of removed not only from Augustine's context, but also from I don't even know how to say this, Augustine's lifeblood, Augustine's passion. And so because maybe my listeners, and some of them are evangelicals, and so for, for some of my listeners, Christianity didn't really start until around 1649 or 1650. And for other listeners, they just haven't had the, they just haven't had the, the philosophical background. If you could, just in a few brief strokes, give us a portrait of Augustine as you understand him. Who was Augustine for you? Yeah, and I think it's important because I I don't want to presume familiarity for readers or listeners. And for me, what's remarkable is actually how indebted we all are to Augustine. So for those, the the basic shape of his life is he lives in the late 300s and early 400s after Christ. So he's an ancient figure. He is from North Africa, uh, not far from what would have been Carthage, in what would be today contemporary Algeria. But because of his intellectual prowess and ambition, he went on to Rome and had a role in the emperor's palace in Milan, and that's where he became a Christian, and then went on to become really one of the giants 
of not only the Western intellectual tradition, but especially of the Church, one of the so-called doctors of the Church. And I think for Protestant evangelicals, it's important to remember that in many ways the Protestant Reformation was kind of an Augustinian renewal movement within the Church. Both Martin Luther and John Calvin looked back to St. Augustine as a catalyst for their own concern about reform and grace and justification and so on. So Augustine is this towering figure in the tradition and maybe has influenced us more than we realize. Well, and so there, there's a lot there to think about. You mentioned Martin Luther. My understanding is that Martin Luther was actually trained in the Augustinian tradition. He was an Augustinian monk. Am I incorrect, or is that correct? No, that's exactly right. Martin Luther, OSA, Order of St. Augustine. And so he, he was formed in an Augustinian monastic community, the same Augustinian tradition, actually, that is the founding tradition of Villanova University, where I did my doctorate on uh, in philosophy. So yeah, there's a continuity there. One of the fascinating things that comes up again and again, though, in your book On the Road with St. Augustine, is that even though, as you just said, Augustine sort of is in the background of everything that we do and everything that we think about, even up to postmodern philosophy, which I found fascinating, we keep misplacing Augustine. And one concrete example, and I was a philosophy major, you studied philosophy as well, I had the same encounter that you talked about in the book. When I encountered Augustine, it was in a book about medieval philosophy, Middle Age philosophy, and you said that you had a similar experience. Why is it, do you think, that we keep misplacing Augustine, who is an ancient figure from the 4th century? Why do we place him almost a 1,000 years later in Christian thought? It's a really great question. I, I think it might be a bit of a tendency for Protestants, because I think we just fall into this trap of imagining there's just this long uh, Middle Ages, and anybody who is a saint must have been part of this vaguely Catholic uh, medieval era, and we sort of we lump Augustine into that category. I, another reason, I, I don't know if this is your experience, but I realized when I was first reading Augustine, I was reading him in these 19th century translations that were still full of these and vows, and it was it just made him feel very dusty and stodgy and old, when in fact, when you can read him, his vivacious prose in a contemporary translation, he feels so remarkably contemporary. So, yeah, I, I think that's a big part of what I'm I'm hoping to do is deconstruct this picture people have that they sort of mislocate Augustine, they lump him with a wrong sort of uh, set of ideas and figures, and uh, to sort of pull him into the present, but by actually honoring the uniqueness of his ancient context. Well, and let's play with that tension throughout this conversation, but as a way of getting into that, let's stick with that ancient context for a moment. So Augustine becomes a Christian at what point in his life? Around how old is he when he actually converts to Christianity? Yeah, so he's around 30 years old. And, you know, one of the things, I, I was talking to some 20-somethings about Augustine, and they were asking, you know, why, why is Augustine relevant for us? And I said, you know, one of the really interesting things about Augustine's life is when he's 29, he still has no idea who he's going to be. And, and you know, we, we still wouldn't have recognized the Augustine that we have received as that young man. So he spends he spends his, you know, teens and twenties really on a ladder of ambition and social climbing and promiscuous sexual conquest, like so many other people today spend their twenties, right? And he's he looks so contemporary because in many ways he's a bit of the sort of frat boy who wants to get to D.C. and be speechwriter for the president. And he knows those dynamics of hunger and conquest and ambition. And it's the disappointment of that quest that leads him ultimately to Christ. And in your book, On the Road with St. Augustine, you mentioned that Augustine is in many ways a cartographer, and so when we look at his thought, when we look at his life, he's a map maker for us, and I love this phrase, he's a map maker on looking for love in all of the wrong places, and that is basically what you're telling us about his 20s. He spends his 20s saying, is it here? Is it here? 
Is it here? And the answer in each of those cases when he gets to the end of whatever pleasure he's going after is, no, it's not here. So he's he knows that he's in search of something, but maybe he doesn't even know what he's in search of, or maybe he doesn't even know that he's searching, but it's almost like he's driven, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's that's well put. Augustine thinks, to, to quote another song, Augustine would agree with Bruce Springsteen that everybody's got a hungry heart. And that's sort of a feature of being human. So one of his most famous lines in the opening paragraph of his Confessions, he says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And really what I think Augustine helps diagnose because he sees it in himself is this restlessness, this anxiety that comes from having a hungry heart but trying to satisfy it on all kinds of substitutes for God rather than the God that it's it's made for. And so he's, but but because he had that experience, he wasn't a goody two-shoes. You know, I mean, this is not a choir boy. He he knows what many of us know in terms of that restless search to try to satisfy what is an infinite longing. But then he thinks what happens is we keep trying to imagine that some finite created things could satisfy what is really only a hunger that can be satisfied by the Creator. I love that. And, and this reference to Springsteen, another line from that song, Hungry Heart, is, I went out for a ride and I never went back. And this is a theme that you bring up again and again in your book, the notion that a Christian is not about place. A Christian is a refugee. A Christian is a person on a journey. And that a Christian can't actually make the final steps alone. And so much of this that I want to get into as we begin this conversation. But when we're thinking about this notion of, of how Augustine shows us how to be Christian, when Augustine shows us how to have faith, why was it that you felt that the road was such an important metaphor for the kind of conversation that we're going to be having? Yeah, I think on the one hand, because that's still such a potent metaphor for us today. The notion of the journey, the road, the quest, the pilgrimage even, that's still very much in the water. You know, the title of the book, On the Road to St. Augustine, is a direct allusion to Kerouac's famous novel. And there's a line in the novel where Sal and and uh, his companion meets a Nebraska farmer, and he says, you boys going to get somewhere? Or are you just going? <laughs> and at, at, they pause and they say, we didn't understand his question. And it was a darn good question. I, I edited there a little bit. And I, I think that notion that we are all on a quest, we're all on a journey, is a pretty just deep human metaphor. But then for Augustine, when you go back to Augustine's work, not just his published works, but his letters and his sermons especially, you see him embracing this metaphor of the road but for him, it's also the journey of the prodigal. And when you go back to Luke 15 and you look at, oh, the prodigal son is on a road trip. And Augustine thinks that's the road trip of every human heart. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're discussing his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're discussing his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. I have a memory of when I finished my doctoral exams in graduate school, and I 
came into my one-room apartment and I put on a CD of the Jayhawks. It's an album called Rainy Day Music. And the very I, I still so viscerally remember the first notes of that first song. And it was like, it was just this, this moment of like, I've made it, I've, I've, I've accomplished something. And I realized as I was reading your book and thinking about that moment that the first song on Rainy Day Music is a song called Stumbling Through the Dark. And it made me think about your references throughout the book to the prodigal son and the prodigal son as a metaphor for Augustine on his journey to faith, but also Augustine's understanding for how we as pilgrims, as refugees, are coming to our own faith. And so let's talk for a moment about the prodigal son. For those that are unfamiliar with that Bible story, what is going on in that story of the prodigal son? Yeah. By the way, at some point, David, we need to talk more about the Jayhawks, <laughs> which I absolutely love. So that's great. So the prodigal son, just to rehearse the sort of outlines of that story from uh, Luke's gospel, what happens is is this son, a younger son, comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. And we all know that you get your inheritance when your father dies. So when the son says, I want my inheritance now, he's saying, basically, I wish you were dead. He wants the gift, but he doesn't want the giver. And so what's remarkable, the first remarkable thing about this story is the father says, here you go, you can have it, and takes that risk and gives the son his inheritance. Because you and I share an interest in philosophy, we'll both love it that the word for inheritance there is actually a Greek word, usia, which is in philosophy the word for being or existence or substance. So you can see how Augustine is going to play on this. And then, of course, what the prodigal son does is he takes that gift that's been given to him, and he sets off for what's called a distant country, a far land. And he basically blows all of it on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He goes to Vegas, spends it down to nothingness. So we move from being to nothingness. And now, at the very bottom of the pit of his experience and existence, here's this good Jewish boy feeding pigs, unclean animals, and he's wondering, what have I done? And the first grace in the prodigal son's experience is actually this wake-up call moment where he looks around and he says, what am I doing? Who am I? Whose am I? And wonders, I wonder if my father would take me home. And so that's the beginning of his return journey now. There's this, this circular journey. Now he starts heading home, and you can hear Already, in, interestingly, in the parable, Jesus gives us the details that he's like rehearsing his apology and his defense and his plea on the way home. But in fact, we also see that before he ever gets to say any of it, the father already comes out running to meet him at the end of the road and says, here's my son. He was dead and now is alive. He was lost, but now is found. That I can't imagine something that is more gospel than that story, and more human than that story. And Augustine sees it, and he says, well, he sees that story, and he says, that's me. But then he also says, that's us. That's that's the human condition, and that's what's possible for us. This is one of the things that you bring out, particularly towards the end of your book, On the Road with St. Augustine. When Augustine tells us the story of Augustine. He's not doing it for prurient reasons. He's not saying, oh, look at my life. He's instead trying to find those aspects of his story, Augustine's story, that open up a universal set of questions, isn't he? I mean, that's what the Confessions is all about, in your opinion. Yeah, absolutely. This is not—it's so different. It's one of the reasons why, actually— I think it's important to not categorize the Confessions as a memoir, because especially in our day and age, I think that's misunderstood. This is not Augustine's quest for celebrity or fame. In fact, he really struggles with, should I be doing this? Because probably I'm going to get famous. But he says the reason he's telling his story is he just thinks it's a microcosmic version of the human story, of the prodigal story. And what he hopes is, in his vulnerability, he could share a story and somebody else hears it and says, that's me, which 
then also means that they could imagine themselves going home, getting home, being found by a father. It's, it's one of the reasons why in the book I suggest there's actually a lot of parallels between the way Augustine uses the story and the way stories work in communities of recovery, like Alcoholics Anonymous, where people basically trade their stories with one another, not because they're trying to outdo one another or, or to get attention. They tell their story actually for the sake of all the other people who've never been to a meeting before, and they finally hear somebody say what they've never been able to say about themselves. And then they are given the permission to say, that's me. And it's like, if that guy can be sober, maybe I can be sober. And that's what I love about Augustine. If St. Augustine can be a saint, maybe I can be saved. That's, that's the encouragement, I think, of the story. And this is one of the wonderful interplays that I found throughout your book, On the Road with St. Augustine. And you, you make reference in several chapters to the recovering fiction author, Leslie Jameson. And by recovering, I don't mean she's recovering from writing fiction. She's recovering from intense addiction. She, she's one of these 12-step people that is living this reality. And she's got a complex relationship to those stories. She comes into those rooms and she's hearing these stories and she, she's got a little bit of complexity that you talk about with that. But, but what I love about what you've just given us is the hopefulness in the storytelling and the idea that sometimes it's not by will but by hearing and by empathizing within a story, we begin to imagine what we could become. First of all, have I heard that right in what you're trying to say, or would you say it in a different way? No, no, that's absolutely right. In fact, Jameson at one point talks about a character in David Foster Wallace's famous novel, Infinite Jest, Don Gately. He's a, he's a, a recovery house mentor and counselor. And she says something like, Don Gately was the kind of figure who made it possible to imagine that you could be saved. And that's exactly what I think Augustine is, is trying to do. It's, it's this sense of identification that, and there's a humanism about it, right? There's a humanizing about all of this. And so it sort of brings grace down to our level, and you start to, it births in you a hunger, and you realize that the beginning of that hunger is the first grace in your life. And that maybe now I could actually find the person I'd always hoped I could be. The other thing that's cool about those stories is, as Jameson talks about them, is she's a novelist, right? And so the burden of the novelist is to always make up a story that nobody's ever heard before, this burden of originality. And so when she came to AA meetings, it's like, oh my gosh, I've heard the same story a million times. But it, what the point wasn't to be original. The point was to actually be a character in a story that you knew. And in the same way, I wonder if what Augustine extends to us is almost like the liberation from the burden of having to be original and authentic, as we put it today, right? The burden of authenticity, which is you're supposed to be one of a kind, and that can be paralyzing and exhausting. And Augustine says, actually, what would it mean to be a child of God? What would it mean to be found in a story, wouldn't that feel like liberation? Well, and but there's a tension there, and, and I want to explore that tension for just a moment, because, one, there's that pull away from individuality and the, the comfort of finally being found by somebody else, but you also write a lot about Augustine's influence on a 20th century philosopher, Martin Heidegger, and one of the things that you bring out is that Heidegger talks a lot about das Mann, the them, and as I was reading that passage, I thought about an old House Martins song from the 1980s, and the, the title of the song will tell you everything you need to know about it. The title of the song is Hopelessly Devoted to Them. And, and it's this idea of, of just losing yourself in the affection of others and, and not really having any character of your own. And so what we're really looking for is not simply a pull away from individuality into anonymity. We're looking for a balance where we're both ourselves, but we are available, loved, vulnerable. Am I getting this right, or would you say it in a different way? No, no, no. I think that's exactly right. That what Augustine is promising is not Right, not losing yourself and your individuality in an anonymous collective. It's, it's being liberated from the burden of having to make it up on your own and realizing that you actually find yourself, the fullness and particularity of who you are, when you find yourself fundamentally in that relationship with a God who sees you, knows you, knows everything about you, 
and still loves you. That and, and that's so different than the fickle attention of your social media feed, right? It's so different from the temptation of fame and attention. It's it's actually it's when I'm seen and known by the creator of the cosmos, I'm actually liberated now to be the individual that he's made me to be with the unique gifts and unique callings and a particular story, but it's not one that I'm making up the ending to. But the difficulty with that is that that also makes you kind of lose your place in the the, the everyday world that we talk about. And another voice that comes up a lot in your book, On the Road with St. Augustine, is the voice of Justo Gonzalez, the Christian historian. And Gonzalez talks about the identity of a mestizo, one who is caught between two worlds and doesn't really belong in either one. For those that are unfamiliar with Latinx culture, another example might be that of an amphibian, one that lives between the land and the water. So your notion here is that a Christian, when they're found by God, they sort of slip a little bit from the world, don't they? Yeah, it's true. There's There will be something, and this is, Augustine thinks this is something that's distinctive about the Christian life, but it's also a certain gift of the Christian life. So, right, Augustine himself, by the way, we should point out is, and this is why Gonzalez invokes the term in Mestizo, Augustine himself was sort of bicultural and and even one might say biracial. His father was Roman and a pagan, and his mom was African, a Berber. And so Augustine knew from childhood that kind of hybridity that you're talking about, that amphibian existence where you you know how to code switch, you might say. You know you know how to live between two worlds. And Augustine, in a sense, that that home was a good practice for being a citizen of the city of God on this earthly sojourn. You you learn that you're not at home in any particular earthly regime or kingdom. And you are on the way, you are you are a resident alien who is is looking for a home country that in a sense you've never been to. So there's always I think that's right. One of the things I love about Augustine is it's what I call his spiritual realism where he's really honest about the precariousness of the life of faith. He's really honest about how difficult it is. How the, the, to, to be in Christ is not to be transported to the end of the road. It's just that now you have a compass. But it doesn't mean that there aren't still ditches <laughs> that, that loom on either side. And, and uh, I, I think honoring the difficulty of the Christian life is its own kind of liberation in a way. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're talking about his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're talking about his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. Well, earlier in the conversation, we talked about fathers and the story of the prodigal son. But anyone who has a familiarity with Augustine also realizes how important Augustine's mother and the question of motherhood is in Augustine's story. And so let's take a few moments and look at this a little bit, because what is it that that Augustine's mother, Monica, does to influence Augustine's life? Yeah, I have to say that it's when I was a young scholar, I completely underappreciated the significance of Monica in Augustine's life. And in a way, it wasn't until my wife and I had a chance to journey in his footsteps through Italy that I realized how large the cult of Monica looms. By cult, I mean that it's people who are devoted to her as this uh, mother of wayward children. The relationship with Monica is complicated. On the one hand, the young Augustine 
is kind of is very much running away from his mother. She's she's a bit of a Woody Allen kind of mother character, and she looms large in his life. And to be honest, the young Augustus who's so ambitious and thinks he's so smart and who is very smart, he associates her Christian faith with a kind of simplicity and backwardness, and that's part of why he looks down on it and and looks down on her a little bit, and is, is running to escape her. But when he gets to Milan. He real and his mother chases him down because she is she is the original helicopter parent and she doesn't quite fly to Milan but she chases him down and it's partly because she just loves him so fiercely that she wants him to love the right things and when he sees an intellectual giant like Bishop Ambrose lauding Monica. It changes his perspective of her, and he realizes, oh, she is a much more complex character than I realized. And so in many ways, Monica, um, I think Augustine would say, interestingly, you know, he's this intellectual giant. But I also think he would say he was kind of loved and prayed into the kingdom of God by his mother, who was so faithful. And in fact, one of the one of the most uh, heartbreaking scenes in his confessions is when his mother dies and the grief that he experiences just after they've had this mystical experience together. So, yeah, she's she's such a um, remarkable figure, and, and that's why she is sort of the patron saint of moms everywhere who are so terrified about what their children are doing and praying fervently, and it's, it's such a beautiful picture. Well, and one of the most moving parts of your book for me was exactly this moment that you're talking about, where you and your wife, Deanna, have stumbled upon this sort of church that's that's a little set aside from the normal paths, and your wife discovers the tomb of Monica, and you reproduce a prayer in the book, and, and part of the prayer says, O Saint Monica, who spiritually nourished your children, giving them birth so many times as you saw them becoming estranged from God, pray for our families, for young people, and for those who can't find the path of sanctity. Uh, you you talk about your wife just bursting into tears when she reads this. What what did she say was going on, or what do you think was going on in her soul as she was encountering this tomb of Monica and this prayer about wayward children? Yeah, I'm. We have four children, and God plays a long game sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I think it's one of the things that that Monica exemplifies is an incredible fervent trust and patience that God would keep his promises. And and I think, I, I know for sure, Deanna was thinking about some of our own experiences with our own children, where there are seasons in the life of a parent where what matters, what you are counting on is the sign that was sealed on them at their baptism, and that's a covenant promise that God has made. And you don't always see the end of that story, but you know the God who does see the end of that story. And it's there was there was this immediate identification across fifteen hundred years and said, Oh Monica, I I know, I know you. <laughs> you know me. We are sisters in this endeavor of of hoping and trusting and praying these children of our tears, as Augustine put it, into the kingdom of God. Oh, and there's so much there to think about. And one of the things that we talked about earlier in the conversation was the fact that Augustine is an ancient figure. Nevertheless, when we look at contemporary thinkers, even very cutting-edge 20th century figures, we see Augustine coming up again in the background and sometimes explicitly. And one of the places where it's explicit, particularly around the question of Monica and motherhood, is in the Algerian philosopher the sort of vanguard of postmodernism and in many ways an infamous philosopher, Jacques Derrida. But you talk about how Derrida is thinking about his own mother as he's meditating on the life of Monica and the relationship to Augustine. Tell us a little bit about that. It is a remarkable sort of subtext that I try to trace in the book, which is how many really significant thinkers and philosophers in the 20th century all had these direct encounters with Augustine's work. And Derrida, the, the, the enfant terrible of, of deconstruction, late in his life actually sort of returned to Augustine's confession. He, he grew up on Rue Saint-Augustin. He grew up on Augustine Street in Algeria. So he returns to this early Algerian philosopher, so to speak, and is reading the confessions. And as he's reading the confessions, 
his own mother is dying in Nice across the ocean. And it's such a, he, he feels this incredible synergy, I might say, empathy, this, this almost uh, um, identification with Augustine's identification with his mother. And it brings out some of his own reflection. It really humanizes Derrida in, in really significant ways. And it's intriguing how we don't have many books about philosophers' mothers. And yet we would have none of those philosophers without mothers. So it's it's intriguing to just displace some of the maleness. You know, Augustine, one, one thing that we, you have to work through a little bit is Augustine certainly reflects his time in the way that he talks about women in sort of didactic places. But then when you see the role that Monica plays in the drama of his narrative, you see that in a way Augustine's kind of deconstructing himself in that regard. Well, one of the things that you highlight in Derrida's wrestling with this, his mother is in a convalescent home. She has gone into senile dementia, and there's there's two things that sort of stick out for me in your reflection on this. One is he says, you know, my mother doesn't remember my name, and so for the rest of her life I no longer have a name. And then you—and you, this just— floored me. There's a point where Derrida says, one of the last coherent things that she said to me, she looked at me and she said, I have a pain in my mother, and it's almost as if she was speaking for me, and now I realize I'm writing for her. And that's both, that's that's brilliant, it's heartbreaking, but it's also Augustinian, isn't it? Yes, very much, very much. And and the honesty about you can hear in Derrida too there there's a hunger for something right to be known to be seen and there was something there was a gift that his mother had given him that feels like it's going to slip away now and you and he, you can hear him worrying what's on the other side of that let's talk about that what is on the other side of that because what what we're talking about is that stumbling through the dark we are all living towards that moment of dissolution where our faculties will fail, where we will eventually go towards our own deaths. And this is something that Augustine is trying to prepare us for in his writings as well, isn't he? Yeah, it's funny how, you know, on on the one hand, people say we live in a culture of death. On the other hand, we live in a culture that is trying everything in its power to not die. (laughs) Right, we we live in a culture that is trying to sort of technologically master immortality if it could. And one of I think the gifts of an authentic Christianity is absolute honesty about mortality. And that that's what you hear in Augustine is he wrestles with the death of his mother is actually one of the primary instances in which he grapples with grief and loss. But he's also you know, he doesn't just believe in the immortality of the soul. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. And that's that's where he had to say good. He had to distance himself from some of the Platonism that had got him to that place. And to affirm the resurrection of the dead is to say something about bodies. And that means taking our mortality seriously. And so I think I sometimes wonder if Augustine could be an invitation for us to be more honest about dying than our culture sometimes is. What we do is we we distract ourselves so incessantly so we never have to face that question. And now I'm going to ask you a question, and you can choose to say that you would like to not answer it, or you, we may choose to go into it, and I'll, I'll leave that to you. In this chapter on, on motherhood, you talk about your wife Deanna's experience as a mother. You talk about Derrida's experience. You talk about uh, Augustine's relationship to Monica, his mother. And maybe I missed it, but I didn't hear you really engaging the question of your own mother and your relationship to motherhood in that sense. And I'm wondering, what was it as you were writing this chapter that you were thinking about with regard to your own relationship to maternity, your own relationship to where you have come from, the womb that sprung you? Mm. Yeah, that's a fair question. Uh, the absence there is probably somewhat telling. I, I think it, it's interesting, David, how much this book was an existential journey and struggle for me. I think that probably most culminates in the father's chapter, but I come from a home broken multiple times over. And so I don't, I was never chased by my mom. (laughs) And so I guess I don't, yeah, that's not what, what instead what I've experienced, I would say are 
the graces of God giving me other mothers uh, in the body of Christ who who have played that role for me. But there's a sense in which there's probably a, there's a longing that can't be sort of displaced or just simply overcome in this life. I, I don't know if you know the um, theologian Andrew Root, who uh, writes a lot on youth ministry and things, but also has a remarkable book on divorce. And he says, he describes divorce as an ontological break for children. Like it just sort of disrupts your world. And I think both the chapter on mothers and fathers is me trying to wade into that break with a companion who uh, can keep reminding me that there's a father. And, and I trust that there's a mother that's throwing that party too when the son comes home. It's an act of trust to answer a question like that, and I just want to acknowledge that. And I also want to say, coming from a broken home myself, I empathize deeply with what you just said, and I I think I understand it in ways that maybe I'm not ready to disclose, but I want to thank you for that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're talking about his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're talking about his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. Well, here in our last segment, I want to talk about just a very brief passage that comes at the very end of the book, almost a coda. It's called Homecoming. But I found this to be the most evocative and really the most challenging moment of the book because you talk about coming to a particular physical point in your journey to follow the steps of St. Augustine. And you come to the Duomo in Milan, built on the site of the cathedral that Augustine visited so often, and it sits on top of the baptistry where he was raised to new life. These are your words. And you, you say there in your book, at, right at the end, there's a quiet section of the church where you will see a curious sign marking off an area reserved for worshipers. This sign instructs, please, no tourists. Do not go beyond this point except for confession. Tell us about the geography of that crossover point. What is happening in that physical space for you that is meaningful and that tells us about what Augustine is showing us in terms of the next step in our own journey of faith? Yeah, I remember it being so jarring. The Duomo, the cathedral in Milan is such a stunning, stunning place, and it's just packed with tourists who are admiring the architecture. And then off in one of the chapels at the side, you, you bump into the sign, and, you're, and then you're reminded, oh, this is a house of prayer. <laughs> this, is, this is a place where people encounter God. This is where your soul is at stake. And it just strikes me, uh, in a way, the book is trying to invite people on a journey that they're already on, which is to find themselves, but to maybe bring Augustine along as a bit of a guide. And at some point, you just realize all Augustine cares about, Augustine doesn't care about being famous. He cares about being a counselor. He, he wants, he, he writes the confessions so that we face our own selves. And I guess that, that's partly my hope of 
my book alongside Augustine is here. I, I would love to be the gateway drug for people to encounter this companion. But really, the whole point of that is not so then you know something about this ancient figure. It's so that you know something about yourself and you you confront that hungry heart. You You confront the infinite longing and you start asking yourself, who's going to satisfy that? Where can I find rest? What's at the end of this road? And uh, it's that kind of confrontation that I think Augustine wants to spark. But you make the distinction here in, in, in the next paragraph. You say that we're not reaching the end of the road when we take that step across the line from tourist to confessor, but instead we're on the next part of our journey. But let's linger there for a moment. What's the difference between being a tourist and being a person who confesses? Yeah, I think the difference is Maybe in some ways the difference is security versus vulnerability. I think, I think the tourist still imagines that she or he is in charge. They've got their Rick Steves guide. They've set the itinerary. They basically have a hotel room to go back to. You know, there's, there, you sort of venture out and you have a little excitement, but at the end of the day, you're safe and secure. The confessor, the true pilgrim, is much more like a refugee who really, to receive grace, you have to uncross your arms. To receive that grace, you have to make yourself porous and open and vulnerable and exposed. And so there's a risk that goes with that. And I think Augustine takes that risk when he shares his story. And I think what he's saying is you can't really find the fullness of being human. And you can't really receive grace if you've buffered yourself and ensconced yourself within the safety of the tour bus. You have to sort of expose yourself to the weather that is God and uh, and to take the risk. Well, this is a very vulnerable book. It's a very honest book. And I'm wondering, if you're willing to share, how your own walk of faith changed in the process of writing this book on the road with St. Augustine. Yeah, I, in, in many ways, First of all, to be totally honest, I couldn't have written this book if I hadn't spent several years on a journey with a Christian counselor helping me work through some real sort of trauma in my life, in which he was helping me to sort of close the gap between what I intellectually believed and the story I carried around in my gut. And so I think in some ways the book is almost the fruit of having gone on that journey. And what I found in Augustine was somebody who... I love it that we need a bishop who confesses all the ways he still blows it. <laughs> you know, like we, we meet this pastor who says, here's all the idolatries that still beset me. That might sound like a weird way to be encouraged, but to me, it's the realism of Augustine's spirituality that makes me, I guess, trust, feel hopeful, feel confident in resting in God, because I know it's not based on my performance. And if Augustine hated anything, it was any form of spirituality or Christianity that imagined it earned its way to God, that it was performing for the sake of getting God's attention. For him, it's grace all the way down. And I I think I've learned to lean into that more and rest in that in a way that has quelled the demons. Well, so when you think about your ideal reader or when you think about your hoped-for reader, what do you desire, what do you hope— a reader will take away from this encounter that you have offered with regard to the life and the thinking of Augustine? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a mix. I, I guess I have a couple different... I, I do think that there'll be readers who are Christians but have, to be honest, inherited forms of Christianity that are incredibly oppressive and sort of shut down possibilities and that actually make it really hard for them to imagine continuing to be a Christian. And I would love for them to find in Augustine a sort of expansive, existential, honest Christianity that they could feel at home in. The other thing, this is probably the first book I've ever really read where I do think there's a lot of people in our culture who are sort of exhausted by the pursuit of happiness in everything but God and are starting to be honest about that disappointment. And are maybe open to considering an alternative, a radical alternative. And uh, it would it would be a dream come true if the book could fall into someone's hands like that and they meet somebody they didn't know that they were spending their whole life looking for. 
your previous book was You Are What You Love, and it's talking about the power of habit. And certainly Augustine thinks a lot about the, the question of habit. And so as we're thinking about the line between your previous book and the current book, is this going to be a trajectory that you're going to continue? Will the next book be expanding more on this delving into Augustinian thought and Augustinian ideas, or do you find yourself maybe being pulled now in a new direction? Yeah, it's a good question. I, this is the first time in my life, my professional life, I have not had a book contract because I just wanted to give myself some room to discern what, what the sort of next season and call is. I don't think it's, I think I've written the culmination of this trajectory and I'm trying to discern what's next for me. And I, I honestly don't know that I have some intuitions about maybe going in the direction of the arts and literary reflection and things like that. But I'm kind of, I'm trying not to be anxious because I don't know, and I'm just trying to wait and see and enjoy it in the meantime. <laughs> well, James K.A. Smith, I just have to say that reading this book, On the Road with St. Augustine, it was a powerhouse for me. I really, I enjoyed not only the ideas in it, but the way that it was written. It's very accessible, even though we're talking about an ancient philosopher. You are weaving through enough of the real world and the things that I confront every day that I felt like I was on a journey with you. And I found it incredibly helpful for some places in my life where I am still dealing with trauma and where I'm still wrestling with my own walk of faith. So I just, on behalf of my listeners, I want to thank you, first of all, for writing the book, but also for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Well, I'm so appreciative of that. That's really encouraging, and I, I appreciate your careful attention to it. It's, uh, it's clear that you've uh, absorbed it, and I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. Thanks so much. We've been speaking today with James K.A. Smith. He's a popular speaker who's written many books, including Awaiting the King, Imagining the Kingdom, How Not to Be Secular, and the Christianity Today Book Award winners, You Are What You Love, Desiring the Kingdom, and Who's Afraid of Postmodernism. He's a professor of philosophy at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he also holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair in Applied Reformed Theology and Worldview. He was editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine from 2013 to 2018 and is now editor-in-chief of the Image Journal. We've been speaking today about his recent book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.